episode 23 with writer and activist Heather McGee. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Calmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Heather McGee designs and promotes solutions to inequality in America. Do you know Heather? You might know Heather. Maybe you saw her on NBC's Meet the Press or MSNBC's Morning Joe. Or perhaps you saw her sparring with Republican Senator John Kennedy during the confirmation hearings of Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch. Or it just may have been that time when While on C-SPAN, an older white gentleman called in to acknowledge his own racism and prejudice and wanted Heather's advice on how to change, how to be a better American citizen. And Heather's response went viral. Born on the south side of Chicago and raised in the suburbs of Evanston, Illinois, Heather McGee has made a career out of fighting for a more equal America. She holds a B.A. in American Studies from Yale University and a law degree from the University of California, Berkeley, and for the last two decades helped build the nonpartisan Think and Do Tank, Demos, later serving as president for four years. She's argued before the Supreme Court to protect voting rights. She's helped Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz design anti-bias training for its 250 thousand employees. She's led research campaigns behind successful wage increases for low-wage workers on federal contracts, as well as at Walmart and McDonald's. And that's like 5% of her resume. But of course, Heather is so much more than her work. She's a wife and a mother of a beautiful two-year-old who makes a small cameo later in the episode. Her new book, The Sum of Us, being released this week and also partially written while carrying the aforementioned toddler, unravels the mystery of how. How the wealthiest country on earth suffers some of its worst health disparities, has a collapsing infrastructure, all while its citizens are crippled by insurmountable levels of debt. One word, racism. And you know who suffers the most? In this episode, we discuss Heather's journey into the hallowed halls of our country's government, how motherhood has changed her view of the world, what parents can do to ensure their children receive good educations, even while under lockdown, and how we all lose in the zero-sum game of racism. If you haven't already, be sure to hit that subscribe button, and if you'd like to support this work, there's a support link in the show notes. And without further ado, I'm so thrilled to welcome to the IBI podcast, the one, the only, Heather McGee. Heather, first of all, thank you so much um, and welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. Um, you You are moving in ways that I think many people don't even really understand, um, 
you know, you've been out uh, in the world in, in many ways, but this book that you have coming out, The Some of Us, um, really, I, in, in my mind, also ends up really being the sum of you because I feel like I see all of the, all of the work that you've done to not only become yourself, but to move through the world with grace um, and all the skills that needed to be acquired in order to do that in this book. So, you know, it takes a certain kind of person and a certain kind of will and a certain level of, of, of love and grace to even create a book like this. And so, uh, so first of all, so, so thank you for that. And I can't wait to hop into it. So again, welcome. That's a bit long, but. No, thank you so much. That's so kind and generous. Appreciate. It. I'm really my, glad to be in this conversation. My father's a, a pastor, so I can be a little long-winded. But I'm going to let you hold up. I'm going to let you speak. <laughs> You're in the middle of my book. You know it's 488 pages. You don't need to <laughs> apologize to me for using words to make the point. <laughs> so, so before we hop into the book, like. Who is Heather McGee? Like, what is your superhero origin story? How did you come to be and come into this work? Well, you know, I guess this is technically the case for all of us, um, but my origin story has to start with my mother, who is just, she is a woman who is in this world, but not of it. I mean, she is truly on another plane and has always been operating on another plane. She's a woman who's a, started out as a holistic health practitioner on the south side of Chicago and then sort of moved upstream into the social determinants of health, um, the kinds of public policies that make it easy to be healthy or harder to be healthy, um, like housing and uh, childcare and education and an adequate income and um, being or not being located near a toxic site, all of these things that we know have these um, tremendous disparities along lines of race, particularly for Black people. And so I grew up being encouraged to ask why and being encouraged to look at root causes. And I knew um, that I wanted to just help make the world a better place, um, you know, pretty much from jump. Um, I was kind of a social justice geek as a kid. I was, you know, really into the environment and animals and poverty and homelessness and always had a new cause. Um, but it wasn't until I um, joined um, a think tank, an organization that was doing research and advocacy around public policies that I really, sort of hit my groove in understanding that I could do what I love for a living. Um, and that was, you know, asking why, looking at the problem from as broad a lens as possible, getting to the root causes, and then designing solutions to inequality. Um, that, 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 that was my jam. That was how I knew um, that I could make a difference. But you also grew up on like the south side of Chicago, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was born on the south side of Chicago. Like so many families, we moved around every year. I mean, we had a different address every year. So um, when I was eight, my mother moved to Evanston, which is the near north suburb. Again, always trying to move for more opportunity, better schools, all of that. Um, but most of my family, much of my family still lives on the South side and I was born and raised on the South side. Yeah. And, and, and what was that trajectory coming from, 
well, south side of Chicago to to Evanston, um, and then off to uh, and then off to school. Like, how did this experience really shape the way in which you're viewing the world now? Yeah. So I had I went from a neighborhood where I was born that was ninety eight percent black to one of the most integrated suburbs in the country, Evanston. And my dad at that point moved to Oak Park, which is um, even more integrated. And so I really did experience like that, like salt and pepper integration, you know, where like my, you look at my like, um, you know, middle school, um, you know, class picture. And it really is like the, you know, the country's population. Um, and then I was, um, and then I went to boarding school when I was in junior high. And that was like way at the other end of the spectrum um, where I moved to rural Massachusetts. I was one of three black kids in the school. Um, there were, you know, far more international kids and kids from Asia in my school than there were black and brown kids. And that was, you know, a fascinating whole nother world to, to enter. And culture to get to know. Um, and I think that that formative period of seeing all of those different worlds, all those different economic worlds, all those different racial and cultural um, and even national worlds um, really helped me see like the common humanity in everybody. Not to say that race didn't matter, but also that, you know, there was this sort of layer of all this advantage and difference and culture and privilege on top of something that at its core was just like people trying to find love, people trying to be themselves, people trying to connect, people trying to learn who they were and get a sense of self-esteem and belonging. Um, so I, I think that that like moving that I always did through different spaces, um, races and places, um, you know, gave me a lot of empathy. And I think probably if there was like one thing that I, you know I'm always teased about by my loved ones, it's like is I have this empathy that is you know, I kind of can't shake, you know, I mean, mm. it has limits, obviously, and this era has tested those limits. <laughs> uh, but, um, but ultimately, you know, I've, I, I, I think that that empathy um, is something that that all that moving and that that moving, you know, you know, being sort of thrust into an extremely white world um, allowed me to have white people move from people on screen and sort of the antagonists in the stories that I was raised with about, you know, what white people did to black people to my roommate and my teacher. And yes, I experienced a lot of discrimination and ignorance, but I also obviously, you know, learned to love people, right? Um, and be loved and be accepted. Mm. Um, mm. And so I think as hard as that experience was, ultimately it was a tremendous gift. It also, I will say, and this is a piece of advice that I give to a lot of mentees and young people. It taught me to see through the veil of whiteness and white privilege mm. and recognize that they, you know, they're just like everybody else. But that oftentimes white people who have been taught a story about themselves and their sort of inherent goodness and inherent value, inherent worth have a sense of self-confidence with which they move through the world. And I was like, oh, oh, I see now. And so I, I often give this piece of advice. I say to people, you know, either women or, you know, people of color or, you know, LBGTQ people, just anybody who's sort of feeling like they're on the outside, that they don't belong, that they're having an imposter syndrome moment. I say, think about that white, cis, het, rich man that you have encountered in one place or another 
put him on your shoulder in that meeting that you feel like you don't belong in and let him say to you what he would do. He would raise his hand. He would offer his advice. He would not let himself be interrupted, right? I mean, you know, and it's important, right? Because it's just a story, right? That whiteness is just a story that, you know, you can just sort of believe or not believe. You can adopt parts of it or reject parts of it. And, And I think it's really important that the parts of the white story that give you a sense of confidence, that give you a sense of um, entitlement and belonging, uh, you know, those should be accessible to us all. Um, and they, they, they're not about whiteness. They're about, they're about, you know, being, you know, on top of a status hierarchy that lets you feel like you can really be yourself and you can really be, um, accepted and you can really expect to achieve and belong. Uh, can we name him? I want to. <laughs> well, everybody has to have their own. So who's yours? Um, I don't know. The first name that came to mind was George, but then oh. I was like, oh, maybe Calvin. I kind of like <laughs> Calvin. <laughs> I think everyone should choose their own who really calls to mind immediately who that person is. You know who he is. Everyone yeah. Is that person. Yeah. yeah. I think it's either a Grant or a Trent, to be honest. <laughs> I think we're, I think we're getting closer. Yeah. <laughs> I actually actually had a really great friend growing up. His name is Hunter Grantham Hall. And I was like, oh, oh wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, like, name it and claim it. You know what? Hunter's great, right? Because he is a hunter. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, my God. Hunter, if you're listening, apologies. Um, so kind of backing up to this, um, to your experience at school and, you know, and thinking about how many um, parents are homeschooling their children right yeah. now. And and I think really rethinking education in a broader sense. I think I think we are on the verge of kind of an education revolution actually that we're not actually speaking about. Mm-hmm. Um and even, you know, my nephew who's 13, but like I think listening to you what that experience allowed for you was a level of of access mm-hmm. um, and 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 um, and a vision of of the world that many do not have. Mm-hmm. Like, how can we as as citizens, um, as concerned citizens, for you know, just even just our family members who are young, how can we kind of buttress the edu- U.S. education system to ensure that they have the same level of access like that you had at, at Milton Academy that would allow for a certain vision? How can we subsidize, mm-hmm. you know, personally education? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's such a good question. My mind went to so many different places because education, you know, school provides so many things. Um, one, it's a way to enable parents to work. Right, and that's, we all feel right now, right? Without school, it is close to impossible for parents to do things other than parent, right? To do things other than parent for eight hours of the day or six hours of the day. And so that's one piece of it. Um, But that's really the the basic, the most minimal. Um, School also provides, importantly, interaction with other human beings. It is the first formation of of the citizenship that we we need and expect from our, from our young people. And so when children grow up in non-integrated schools, in segregated schools, whether they're all white schools or all brown schools or all black schools, they are not getting the what we hope for, which is really for me the aspiration of America. It's true 
promise is that we are soon, and this youngest generation is already a part of um, a country by age where there's no racial majority. And that could be a beautiful thing to reveal our common humanity, right? If we are up against all of these different people with different skin colors and different cultures, and we find things to connect with each other about nonetheless, right? Because you know, at our core, we, we all want the same things, right? We wanna be loved, we wanna be free, we wanna love, you know? Um, and if we can make those connections and give, reject finally this lie about a hierarchy of human value. And if our children can experience that on a visceral level before they learn all the rest of the crap, then that is the best thing we can do to empower and create the kind of citizens we want because as we look at you know, the flip side, right? The adults who are currently running our country in so many state houses um, uh, and, and you know, frankly in the Republican party, it's, it's adults who have the exact opposite, right? Who have never learned to reject the idea of this hierarchy of human value, whose first instinct is to scapegoat and to punch down and to degrade and to demean. And, and the reason why I say that that is the most important piece of citizenship is that in my book and in the three-year journey I took to write this book, it really became clear to me that this country would be so much better off and so much more functional that we would have nice things, as I say, right? As we would have like, well-funded infrastructure, you know, the high-speed rail that we could count on, like well-funded public schools, that we could have a public health system that could not make our pandemic response the worst in the world, right? How is that possible in what's supposed to be the greatest, richest country on earth? And it's because of racism. It's because the people in charge and the people, the majority of white voters who continue to vote against the party of civil rights, which is what the Democratic Party has become with its all, you know, despite its flaws, that's what it is, right? Um, those people, the majority of them have continued to believe this negative story about people of color that makes them cut off their nose to spite their face, that makes them want to create and support public policies that are mean and distrustful, right? This idea that poor people, for example, you know, need all of these incentives and punishments in order to, you know, work and be self-reliant as if, you know, I mean, I, it, don't get me started, right? Um, it, it's the story that's that's at the heart of, of my book, which is the story of the fact that this country used to have 2000 public pools that were funded by tax dollars that were the heart of their communities. And so many of them were segregated that when the civil rights movement came and federal courts began to order that these pools be integrated, so many towns drained their public swimming pools rather than let black children swim. And that to me is where we are as a country. We're all sort of sitting at the bottom of this drained pool with in the words of Amanda Gorman, our National Youth Poet Laureate, you know, hey. saw a force that would shatter this nation rather than share it. And so learning to share because you trust in, because you hold in esteem your fellow human being is the most important lesson that we can teach our young people. And so I don't think that 
it's enough to just homeschool our children. I will get back to the point, right? <laughs> because, um, I mean, listen, I know I'm the mother of a two-year-old. The time in this pandemic when he was out of school and just with my husband and me for you know all of the time, he went from a few words to, you know, I mean, he speaks like a four-year-old now and he's two. I understand that in many ways, you're, the parents are the best teachers, right? Um, if you have the resources, the time to be able to really pour yourself into your children, there's no better person to learn from in terms of that brain development and that, you know, kind of inspiration and that mimicry and imitation that they do. But that is not the only point of school. The other point of school is the socialization and more specifically being socialized to be a citizen who, who learns to trust and be able to link arms with people um, who are not exactly the same, who are not just your family, right? Because that's not the real world. And, and when we have those, those, you know, frankly, we have children growing up in segregated schools as the majority of white children still do 50 years after Brown, almost 60 years after Brown versus Board of Education. You know, we have citizens who don't trust, you know, people who are not like their neighbors in their neighborhood. And that's where we get into this mess. Absolutely. And you, you, you started sliding in, sliding into the book. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna circle back because it's so rich and so dense. Um, but you actually also mentioned uh, your two-year-old son. Mm -hmm. So, so first of all, congratulations. Thank you. Um, second of all, how did having a son, you know, a young brown boy, in the world, in America, changed the way you viewed the world um, or shifted the way you viewed the world and your work? That's such a good question. Um, having a child um, of any kind <laughs> changed me, first of all, like just, you know, as a woman having a child, right? it changed my body, it changed my, you know, blood pressure, it changed my <laughs> shoe size, you know, it changed everything. Right. They had to cut my wedding ring off my finger, you know. Oh no. Give birth, you know. I mean, it just, you know, it changed a lot, right? It changed a lot. Let's let's real talk about this. Um, but then once all that, you know, faded away, um, it made me feel it, it that empathy muscle got even stronger, right? It allowed me just that much pure, unadulterated caregiving shifted my, you know, the, the, the pieces of the sort of selfish youth that I still had in me that made me, you know, just see the world through, through my lens, right? It just, it was stripped away, right? By being totally and completely beholden to, um, you know, this, this helpless infant um, really, really moved me from being, you know, as self-centered as, as we all grow up to be, um, to expand that sense of, of the self in a huge way. It made me more focused on uh, addressing climate change because, you know, when I was holding him in his first month of life, uh, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released a report saying we have 12 years to act to, to uh, avert the worst impacts of climate change. And, that, you know, that gets very real, right? I mean, 12 years, you know, is nothing in my son's life. Um, so that, that changed. I also, um, it changed my, it made me more efficient, 
Um, this is something you know, I've, I've actually talked to a number of women in recent months who are pregnant or thinking of getting pregnant and are worried about their careers and worried about being productive still. And just that, you know, that zero sum of like, is this hour going to be spent with my child or, you know, at work or, you know, with my creative project. And it's more with, you know, creatives who are like, this is all I have is me and my time, you know? Um, But I have to say my experience two years in is that I am more efficient. I mean, I wrote this book, you know, pregnant and with my in my son's first two years of life. Um, you just get more focused, right? Because every minute that you're not with him, you know, is a little worse, right? And so you just want to mm. get it done. Um, so I found that I've been sort of smarter and more efficient um, in these, these two years of life, which has been a real gift. Um, that mommy brain stuff is, you know, maybe real about, you know, forgetting your car keys, but I think mothers are some of the most productive people in the world. Um, and then finally, it made me, um, it gave me a new sense of rage um, about injustice, about, about specifically about people who would harm the most vulnerable, um, you know, I, the, the, you know, all of the babies locked up, right? Whether they're locked up mm. you know, on, mm. on Rikers or they're locked up at the border. I just, it just, it makes me furious, furious to imagine um, and to think about, um, you know, children, whether they're, you know, four months as the youngest child separated from his parents at the border was or, you know, whether they're 17. Um, it just, it makes me, it makes me furious. Yeah. And, and that's, a, I think, a good segue to, to hop into the book, because one thing that I really love and appreciate about the book is that not only do you make case after case after case, but you really show the multiple levers at play um, and and understanding that the world we live in and what really what this podcast is is, is about is that the world we live in has been designed. Mm-hmm. This is by design mm-hmm. and we are operating in systems. Yeah. And so although there may be a young man, 17 and Rikers who may be there right for, you know, possibly maybe taking a backpack or something. um that there were multiple failures. There were multiple things in play um, outside of his control, outside of his parents' control Mm -hmm. that many of us stepped into and inherited that because they have not been addressed, because there are, there are a group of people who just never learn to share that he ends up there and he is still somebody's baby. Mm. Right. He is still there. And I think even myself, you know, as as I age and mature, you know, I look back at my baby pictures and I realize that that little boy is still here. Yeah. You know, I look back and I'm like, am I making you proud? Like, am I giving you the life that you deserve? And and so that baby is always there. And mm-hmm. so when you talk about that rage, I like, you know, I get it. So, you know, so the some of us, <laughs> which which I love, which I love the title, okay. um, 
My because... husband will be happy. That was his. That was his innovation. <laughs> oh well, you well, you. It's a line in the book, actually. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously, this is not news to you. <laughs> <laughs> he he but... came up with the title, um, you know, while I was writing it, and I, I resisted at first, but now I really love it. Thank you. Yeah, because it it does it does it does take take all of us and um you know and you know that phrase where people say like we're only as good as the weakest among us. Mm-hmm. You know, it really sets the tone for that because we are living in a in a world where people or I should say a country, right? Mm-hmm. Specifically, um where you know, we're living in a world is like the only the best we can do is what a certain group of people think that the worst among us deserve. That that's exactly right, darling. That's exactly right. I I am fundamentally a hopeful person um, because I know that decisions, as you say, made the world as it is, and that better decisions can change it. And nothing about our situation, right? The situation of racial and economic inequality, of of so many big, huge challenges not being addressed by American leadership, whether it's in government or business. Um, Nothing about our situation is inevitable or immutable, but you can't solve a problem with the consciousness that created it, right? And what is the consciousness that created American dysfunction? It is the antiquated belief that some groups of people are better than others. And what it does is it distorts our politics. It drains our economy the same way that you know, white towns drained their public swimming pools rather than integrate them. And it erodes everything that we have in common from our schools to our air, to our infrastructure. And everything we believe comes from a story that we've been told. Mm -hmm. So I set out on the journey to write the sum of us to piece together a new story of who we are and who we could be to one another to glimpse the new America that we must create for the sum of us. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting. <laughs> I know it was your husband's idea, um, but it speaks to so many things, right? Because when I even think about um, <clears throat> those who came before us, right, and the work that they were doing, yes. um, you know, Nina, Maya, uh, Jimmy, you know, in a way, like, you personally are the sum of them mm. because and 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 as am I, right? Um, because because of them, because of the addition, right? The the compounding interest of their work, we have been put in places to, for you to be able to write this book, to actually speak to the thing. Because I think somewhere, at least for me personally, spiritually, I understood that white supremacy ultimately harms white people, and mm-hmm. I don't think they get it. Like I'm like, this is. In the long term, you are suffering as well. Like this is a mutual exchange here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as much as you deprive, you know, one person of their humanity, you strip yourself of the same. And, you know, and 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 I think that, you know, that nihilism that mm-hmm. exists um, is really rooted in that. Yeah. And it's and it's really deep. You know, yeah. it's really deep. It's past. I mean, I would love to talk to, you know, Freud or Young about it. I mean, I think it's a yeah. little bit deeper than subconscious, like yeah. whatever that next level is. Yes. Dante, I'm sure Dante had a level for it. Oh. But <laughs> but um <laughs> but you know, and and what you but what you do in this book is actually lay it out. Mm-hmm. You really lay it out particularly as it pertains to economics. Mm-hmm. Um 
um, and so you make a really strong case. So how did this project even come about? Like, I know you spoke about your work at Demos before, but what made you decide, like, I need to write a book? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I tried the other way, right? I tried working at a think tank, going through the sort of policy advocacy route where you do the research to describe the problem, to, to discover the depth of the problem. You, 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 you know, you do the white papers, you do the congressional testimony, you draft the legislation, you try to move it, right, to solve a lot of the economic problems that frankly, you know, impact uh, a pool of Americans, the majority of which are white, right? Whether it's a lack of health care, majority of the uninsured are white, whether it's poverty, the majority of the impoverished are white. People working for under $15 an hour in poverty wages, the majority of those people are white. We are disproportionately in that pool, but we are not the majority of that pool. So solutions to those problems would impact the majority of people served would be white people. And yet white people continued to vote for a party that rejected those solutions. And the reason why the Republican Party continues to get the majority of white votes, and I wanna make sure that everybody listening really knows this, no, the majority of white people have not voted for a Democrat for president since Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act. White people in this country used to have a very, what we now think of as liberal idea of what they wanted government to do. This was some research that I um, unearthed uh, that really just sort of blew my mind that uh, in the 1950s and 60s, white people almost over two thirds of them, almost 70% of white people thought that the government ought to provide a job to everyone who wanted one. Can you even imagine that now? They thought that white people, that the government should guarantee a minimum standard of living in the country. Now, I've grown up over the past 40 years in a world in which the white distrust of government, the white uh, desire to not see government extend a helping hand to anybody has shaped our politics and has made our economy meaner and made more misery for more of our people. Again, our people, but also the majority of whom are white, right? And so that was just like, a, I was like, who, who were these white people? You know, what was the story they believed that allowed for that? And of course, what happened was the story they believed was that those benefits would only go to people who were deserving, i.e. people who were white, because that is the world they had experienced. They had experienced 50 years of, um, or you know, they'd experienced almost 50 years of, of the kinds of generous public benefits, whether it was subsidized housing or um, you know, mortgages that were, were, were backed by the federal government, or it was um, contracts for housing that excluded by, you know, were written into the contract, you may not sell to, to uh, you know, a non-white person, or whether it was the GI Bill, which was supposed to be to all service, you know, service veterans, but ended up being almost exclusively to white veterans. All of these you know, whether it was segregated schools, all of these pieces of, of real um, kind of public support for a decent quality of life 
had been whites only labor unions, which had allowed you know working people with very little education to have middle class jobs with healthcare and benefits and retirement. Those you know many of them, most of them were were exclusionary until the civil rights movement, and so they expected this sort of promise of a good life to have this asterisk. And when that asterisk was ripped away by the civil rights movement, they said, hey, we are all here. We are all contributing. We all deserve to benefit. The white majority walked away from the support for that social contract. And that is why what came after the civil rights movement was the inequality era, you know, where you started to see working people not have the same return on work. You started to see um, you know, CEO pay run away, you started to see taxes go down and, you know, and our public infrastructure begin to crumble and get worse and worse and worse in most of our neighborhoods. And so that's why it felt to me like just providing the data to the decision makers was not getting at the heart of the core story, right? Everything we believe comes from a story we've been told or sold. And that's the other thing about the book and my experience of writing it was it became so clear to me, if it wasn't already, but really so clear to me that this is a story that has been sold to white people by wealthy white people who are very interested in keeping their money, you know, and making more of it off our backs, right? It, it is not something that people, white people just sort of get. It's something that's reaffirmed on a daily basis from right-wing media, from Donald Trump, you know, from, all of this that has really just said it's a zero sum. Either they get it or you get it. So you better hold on to what you have and you better at great lengths make sure that they don't get any of it. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, you're like, what? Hercules, Hercules. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's it. And, you know, what I found you know, that case is like, you know, the cost of white supremacy. Yeah. Yeah. The cost. I, 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 I yeah, you put all the puns in the title of the book, like, I'm sorry, but like, you know, the, the cost of it, like when you talk about, you know, how white um, individuals, particularly in the South would rather drain the pool than integrate, mm-hmm. you know, like it, it brought to memory a, a time I used to perform um, and I know you, st- you were interested in theater at some point too. Yeah. Um, but you know, I was on Disney cruise ship and my grandmother was there and there was a jacuzzi and it was full. And, um, and she was like, Oh, let's get in the jacuzzi. And I was like, Verdina, we called her by her first name. I was like, Verdina, but it's like, it's full. And she's like, Oh, don't you worry about it. The moment I get in there, everybody will get out. And li- this is <laughs> not long ago. And, Literally, she sat in the jacuzzi and one by one, slowly but surely, the jacuzzi just emptied out. Mm. Like maybe took about five minutes. Mm. And there we had the pool to ourselves, you know, or the jacuzzi. And I was just like, whoa. But but when but getting back to this idea of the cost of white supremacy, what we those white people got out of the jacuzzi because they didn't get to enjoy the jacuzzi anymore. Yeah, yeah. Blackness get, get in the water and get on right. somehow. I mean, now literally what happened, you know, and not just in the South, I want to make this very clear, you know, my research, I found cases of this in Ohio, in St. Louis, right? Um, there are so many places that don't keep a record of the draining of the public pool, right? And it's hard to find. 
um, but it happened all over the country where they literally just said, we won't have this resource. Um, you know, oh, I forgot to finish, right? So two thirds of white Americans wanted the government to provide a job to everyone who wanted one and a basic minimum standard of living to everyone in the country with that asterisk. That last time it was a, almost 70% in 1960. By 1964, right, the year after the March on Washington where there was a demand for a universal job guarantee and a universal um, high minimum income, that support among white people went from nearly 70 to 35%. And it has stayed low ever since. So, I mean, they drained the pool of resources as well, right? Our tax base was as, hit its peak per capita in 1965, right? It was like, as soon as the idea of sharing this country with people whom they'd been taught for generations to be unworthy, to be unclean, to be undeserving, they, they walked away from the entire project. And here we are now, a country with no universal health care, no universal paid family leave, no universal um, you know, high standards of education. Um, one of the things I talk about in, in the book, in the Some of Us, I talk about um, the way that we went from having virtually free college when it was mostly white people going to college to now this debt for a diploma system where you have to go into five and six figure debt in order to get what is now the minimum guarantee of a middle-class job. And what kind of sense does that make? It's basically, there's so many things that I tried so hard, Daria, I really did. I tried to like go the straight way, right? I tried to be like, well, did you know you know, Congressman, that we used to be able to fund our public education and allow it to be tuition free. In fact, you, Congressman, paid $150 a semester for your state school 35 years ago. And if we just spent this much more money, which would, you know, give us the economic benefits three and four times for every dollar invested, right? I tried to sort of use the math to convince them that it was in the economic interest of the country to fund public higher education, for example, to make school, you know, to make college as affordable as it was two generations ago. And they were like, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. But it didn't get at the story, the core reason why there is this hang up, why there is this self-sabotaging sentiment. And then I, I want to be clear, like when we use the example of the public pools and all of that, it's easy to say, oh, okay, that was Jim Crow. That was segregation, of course, right? But the story you told about your grandmother was not Jim Crow and segregation. It was what, 10, 20 years ago. And the policies that we're talking about that are these examples of the drained public pool still today um, are, are, are absolutely contemporary. And so I did have to dig in. I was like, okay, so it's not that, it's not that the white majority, which votes for people like Donald Trump twice, right? It's not that the white majority that votes against Barack Obama, right, twice. It, it's not that they think that we are biologically inferior the way that, you know, their grandparents did. Right, it's it's a more subtle kind of racism, and what what I discovered is it's something actually um, called um, racial resentment. It's what sociologists call racial resentment, which is the idea not that that black people are biologically inferior, but that black people don't try hard enough. 
And so it's like, it's not every black person, right? So it's, it's things we choose to do. So that's why there are always exceptions, right? That's why white racists today can say, well, I know this black person, how could I possibly be racist? This black person is my friend, et cetera. Um, but it's, you know, it's just most of us, right? And it's not biology, it's culture. It's not uh, inborn ability, it's effort. And so of course it puts the blame for any disparities in, in economics on black effort, right? And it means that in fact, the government shouldn't do anything to help these people because they don't wanna help themselves, right? That's the narrative, that's the story. Anyone who's ever been anywhere proximate to the hustle of black community, right, knows that it's a lie, but it's a very old and very self-serving lie. It's the same lie that said we were lazy when we were enslaved, when people who literally did not work because you had people working for free, whom you had carte blanche to torture and rape, were doing the work for you. The, the psychology of projection that had to do something with that moral quandary flipped it. Right? And that's what whiteness has always done, right? Flip the moral blame and saying, in fact, it was black people who were lazy, not the white people who were literally watching them work with a lash in their hand, right? It was um, black men who were the rapists and that's why they needed to be lynched, not the white men who created, you know, a third to a, what, I mean, what I was just trying to remember that, you know, Skip Gates did the data of like how many, it's some 40%, I think, of, of Black men today can trace, uh, you know, a white ancestor from slavery, right? Like, I mean, and, you know, thank you, you and me, you know? Um, so it just, it's, it's that work of projection. And I tried in the book to just keep it to the economy, right? And so, you know, the book has, 10 chapters and, and nine of them are about the economy. But then there was one that I realized that I, I couldn't avoid getting to the heart of it, getting to what Dr. King called um, the law written on the heart, mm. which is the moral piece, right? Which is ultimately the economy and the rules that we uh, agree upon to guide the economy are just reflections of our moral assumptions, right? About who, 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 who deserves, about um, you know, what merit is, about what should be rewarded, what should be valued, right? And so ultimately, it's that moral distortion that white supremacy creates in the white mind that has led to our economy and the rules of our economy being set adrift. Um, and it's because, you know, the moral compass is off. So of course, our economy is adrift. Um, and you know, it's it's the the good thing <laughs> I will say is that as I said, I'm fundamentally a hopeful person, and my book does end with hope because I do. Um, in fact, there's a piece of this in every chapter. I did in my journey start to discover something I called the solidarity dividend, which is the idea that there's there's some gains that we can unlock, but only by coming together, right? Um, only through collective action, right? There are just so many things that we we can't do on our own. That's the sort of that's one of the the aspects of the white story that we need to reject. This idea that we can just sort of improve everything on our own through individual effort and not through collective action. And it's when you can create these multiracial coalitions that you start to see things really come together. You start to see things like the fight for 15. I talked to these fast food workers in Kansas City who, you know, white, black, and brown had come together, rejected the kind of scapegoating and racism and division that is only ultimately serves the boss, only ultimately serves to sort of perpetuate 
um, you know, poverty wages. And they said, no, we're going to band together. We're not, not going to let you peel us off and pit each other um, against each other. Um, you know, I found that in, in Richmond, California, where there was this beautiful multiracial coalition that had united across, you know, there were Laotian immigrants and Hmong people and Black people and white people and brown people who had come together to take on the biggest polluter in their community, which was Chevron. And they had been able to win these incredible concessions from Chevron and this sort of, honestly, this sort of, you know, kind of green shoots of a Green New Deal in this extremely polluted and segregated place because they had come together together. And, and I do believe that that's, that's where we're headed, right? That that's where, that's the world that young people see. That's what we saw this summer when you saw, you know, cities across the country, towns across the country, backwoods, rural areas across the country where you had white people marching in solidarity of Black lives, mostly young people, but also, you know, old people, right? I mean, remember the, the brother in, in, in Buffalo who got his head cracked open by the cops, right? You remember, I mean, there was a a breakthrough, I think, that you know it, it needs to be seized and built upon and, and translated into to deep structural change. But I don't think that it is beyond us to finally reject this lie of white supremacy. I'm hoping that my book helps provide one other piece of the puzzle, you know? I mean, I'm, I'm dear friends with Alicia Garza, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter. We talked a bunch through the course of me writing this book. And I said, you know, I know the risk, right? I know the risk is that I'm talking about the costs of white supremacy to white people. And white people will take that and be like, okay, good. So this is our problem too. And we don't owe y'all anything. And, you know, we're actually the victims here, right? Like there's sort of the nightmare scenario of where, you know, my argument could go, but it was very clear. And Alicia was so, um, you know, um, generous and holistic in her vision to, to remind me that A, we have never won anything without white allies, right? I mean, Dr. King would have been the first person to say that. There were how many black people in Congress when we won the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, right? I mean, it, you know, we, we are still, at 80% white people in government, right? So, you know, we are going to need a big chunk of them to say, I'm gonna ride with you, right? And I think that only talking about the idea that white people should be riding with us because they feel guilty or because you know, they're the kinds of, you know, goody two-shoes, altruistic people who just love to do things that are kind of bad for them, but good for somebody else. That's not a majoritarian consensus, right? I don't I don't love to do things that are bad for me and good for other people, right? You know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. saying, right, that racism is so good for white people, why would white people not choose to ride with racism? And so I do believe that in widening the aperture we can bring more people into the cause, not by softening at all any of the truths, right? Of the fact that of course, racism's primary targets are always the ones to bear the disproportionate burden and cost, but that it's a lie and it's a fallacy to pretend like there isn't spillover and that this is not a stupid way to run a country and a society and that this is not self-sabotaging and that you're not leaving some of your best players off the field. Um, you know, we really, really can't, we can't get much further. We cannot progress. We cannot progress with this paradigm, this zero sum paradigm that 
progress for one group has to come at the expense of others. We, we just, we're, we've sort of meet, reached the, the economic and moral end, I think, of, of the usefulness of that old paradigm. The paradigm was created obviously by stolen land and stolen labor. And I, I start the book, you know, reminding us where this idea came from and said, okay, so if we're not still trying to make our money off of enslavement, then this isn't actually a good paradigm to be walking through the world with and to be organizing our society with. So let's come up with a new one. And I think the new one is really something, frankly, that black people have known for a long time, which is that we need each other, right? And that there is something important and we can get farther together than we can get on our own. And that we are not the enemy. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, you know, even as you were speaking, there were so, so many things, so many places to go. I think, you know, on, on one hand, you know, you even speak about it in the book, but I, I think about, um, you know, reconstruction. A lot of people, it's so interesting growing up in a normal, you know, kind of public school, we didn't talk a lot about reconstruction, but like there were a lot of policies in place. Like this isn't our first time trying this out on mass right but again just like we saw a couple of weeks ago which is so crazy this insurrection well attempted coup or whatever that was yeah the the the, the instagram coup um you know this is also not new and so there were attempts uh, almost exactly a hundred years ago right to kind of level the playing field a little bit like uh, mea culpa kind of make amends in a way and again it was this white mob yeah that went in and you actually speak about it but i'm actually going to read it really quickly because i i took a quick screenshot of it because it was so prescient knowing that we just literally had this happen like three weeks ago. But you said, in the years that followed, federal troops traveled across the South registering 700,000 recently freed black men. So this is shortly after the Civil War. Um, The white backlash to black suffrage was immediate and not just by elites who saw their political privilege threatened. In Colfax, Louisiana, for example, when a pro-Reconstruction candidate supported by black voters won a fiercely contested gubernatorial race in 1872, the following spring, a mob of armed white men attacked the courthouse where the certification of the election had been held, killing about 100 black people who were trying to defend the building and setting the courthouse on fire. The white citizens murdered their neighbors and burned the edifice of their own government rather than submit to a multiracial democracy. Yeah. And that was that literally was just 2021. <laughs> that was just I mean, less, we, less bloodshed thank you luck, luckily but but not you know not not for lack of trying right i mean oh. they killed five people five people died and i think they you know if they had been able to reach members of congress particularly you know yeah democrats there would have been bloodshed um there would have been there would have been assassinations and that's what's so terrifying it's so terrifying to see the problem is this lack of history, this lack of understanding of history, this desire to continue to rewrite it. Um, you know, this was what the Confederates did, right? With this lost cause, they called it called it ideology. Um, it won, right? The 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 recasting of American history as a story of American innocence, as as racism as sort of a small you know, blip as a, as a piece that was sort of inevitably overcome as something that wasn't sort of a majority violent and soup to nuts, you know, woven through the American 
political and policy system, the desire to minimize all of that allows for what's happening today, which is Republicans to see what, to, to be holed up under their own desks in Congress and then come out and vote for the exact same idea that animated the mob, the lie that this fool in the White House told to raise money, which was that the election was somehow stolen because people in Detroit voted, right? Um, you know, I mean, let's be clear about the racism in the election fraud lie, right? It's the idea that because the majority of white people did not vote for Joe Biden, that it could not have been a legitimate election. Mm. And this idea of the criminality of Black votes, right? This is the idea Black people are criminals. When Black people vote, they're doing something illegal, right? I mean, it, it, only, it only makes any sense if you already are taught to be so suspicious of Black people and Black power and so threatened by it. Um, you know, it, it really, we, smarter people than I have said that we are in another reconstruction era. Um, and it, it's really true. It's really important for us to recognize that this is the, this is the fight, right? This is, this is the American crucible is, mm. is whether or not we can share this nation or whether we have to shatter it. Right. And that mm -hmm. shattering came in the civil war that shattering came in the compromises that the founders had to make in order to get the slave states to sign the Constitution. The Electoral College, which keeps putting unpopular men in the White House, was a slave state compromise, right? I mean, you know, we just, we have so many places where this country has compromised its ideals. It's been less than it could be because of the need to hold on to racial subjugation. And white people have a choice today of whether or not they're gonna keep holding on to it or they're going to open their palms, join hands with us and march forward into the brighter future that we all know is possible. And I will say that we as black folks have a choice too. It is really easy in this day and age when we are very present on social media, when we are being more and more present in culture, when the culture is moving, the broader culture, right? All of that to feel like we have power and that we don't need white people, don't want white people, don't need white people. And my dear friend, Rashad Robinson, the head of Color of Change, you know, says this all the time. He says, don't mistake presence for power. And we are not yet and ultimately never will be, because even when people of color are a majority, right, that still includes, you know, Hispanic people with white skin, uh, right? And it still is about numbers. It's not about money, right? So we are never going to be able to do this alone. And so in many ways, this, my book is an invitation both to my Black brothers and sisters and to my white brothers and sisters to come together on an agenda of mutual interest and mm -hmm. say that ultimately none of us can do it alone, um, that it, it may feel good to, you know, kind of say that we are only going to ride with, you know, us, but we won't get as far, right? I mean, in Georgia, it was all about Black women, Black leadership, you know, young Black people turning out, but it was also 
about white suburban women who finally said, I'll vote for y'all. And John Ossoff, who looks like a man I want my daughter to marry, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, right? I'll, I'll but, edit that you know, out. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think we need to do it together. And I think it's really important for us to, um, you know, to let them in when they want to come in. Yeah. Yeah, abso- absolutely. Um, you know, I, I want to pivot slightly back to the book um, to really speak about like black wealth and the loss of black wealth. There's one and you know, antidote in particular that I found so moving. Um, and you were speaking about um, the subprime mortgage uh, mm. crisis mm-hmm. that we had that, you know, again, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you again for this book, because you you not only talk about the thing, you you also speak about what led up to it. Right. That this was not actually anything new, that there were there was writing on the wall a very long time before 2008, before this market crash. Um, And there's one woman, Janet. um, I'm sorry, Janice that you speak about who, who did have a home, who just wanted to refinance um, in order to you know, free up a little money to send her, her children off to, to private school. Um, and in that, in that story, you kind of broke down a lot of myths around mm-hmm. what happened. Could you speak a bit about that and the ways in which not only subprime mortgages, but other systems that have led to this decrease in, in black wealth? This was really important to me to include in the book. The policy issue that I worked on the longest that was sort of my formative experience in economic policy was lending, debt, credit, um, credit cards, payday loans, and mortgages, including the kinds of mortgages that were at the root of the financial crash of 2008. And I was working on these issues in the early parts of the 2000s when these new kinds of mortgages, not the 30-year fixed rate affordable mortgages, but rather these subprime, as they're called, mortgages. And subprime mortgages are called that because they were supposed to be given to people who had less than subprime credit scores, right? Whose credit scores were blemished or not good enough to um, be in the you know low-risk category. And so for that, because they were supposed to go to those kinds of borrowers, they were, they were allowed to be um, more expensive, right? Because the idea was that lenders were pricing for the risk, right? It's like, oh, this person is probably going to default, so let's make more money. Let's have higher payments in the upfront, right? Let's let's price for the risk. The fact is that the majority of subprime loans before the crisis, the majority of subprime loans before the crisis went to people with prime credit scores. It wasn't about the borrower. It was about the loan. And so what happened was people, lenders, brokers, this entire deregulated, again, this is this sort of like conservative anti-government thing. We don't need government. We don't want government. Government is, you know, for lazy Black people. And so we strip the government of any of its regulatory function as well and allow for a wild west in the lending industry, which meant that, sorry, my son and my husband came home. Um, we allowed for this wild west in the lending industry, which meant that a company like Chase Mortgage Bro- Brokers, which was not Chase the bank, but they just adopted that name. Sorry. No, let them come on in. <laughs> um, um, 
Chase mortgage brokers could sell a high price loan to Janice Tomlins um, and her husband to refinance and a loan that could have, had they not been able to, to sue that bank, that lender in a, um, in a class action suit, could have you know, led to the foreclosure. And so the story of the financial crisis for me, where it really started with subprime loans that were targeted in black and brown communities, not because black and brown people were worse credit risk, but because lenders could get away with it because they were the people with the least respect and protection by the financial industry and by government. And then you had this kind of monster that grew because it was like, oh my gosh, we can make so much money. We can charge people 9% instead of 5%. And when you're talking about APR, and I break this down in the book, because I think it's important. You know, it, that doesn't mean it's like four percentage points more. That means it's like doubling the price of the loan. They, that was so much money. Once they had tested it out on black people, then they said, okay, now this can go to the wider and whiter mortgage market. And the wheels, you know, the brakes were off and it was, and it was, you know, greed driving it, but it was this toxic combination of racism and greed. And so, I, you know, from my experience being one of the outmatched and unheeded few people who were trying to say there is a major problem in the mortgage market back in the early 2000s, I am clear that we, if it were not for racism, we would not have had the financial crisis. And it's yet another example, and to me the most expensive one to date, of the way that racism ultimately has a cost for everyone. Absolutely, absolutely. I, and I, I want to respect your time, so I have just a couple of uh, other questions, um, and then I will give you back your afternoon, and thank you so well, much. Well, I've so enjoyed so this. Generous. I can talk for another hour, except I can't. So. <laughs> Well, I appreciate I appreciate the the, the sentiment. Um, so, so thinking about just you um, moving through the world, um, you 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 move in a way that reminds me of um, a character in Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. Um, you know, with hyper empathy. Do you, have mm. you read it? Of course, of course. Yeah. Of course. So you know, and it's it's interesting, uh, particularly when I think about Black women, right? Specifically, um, the the power and strength and the ways in which they move through the world with such care and grace. Um, you know, our sister Stacey Abrams just nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. Amazing. Um, but for you personally, how do what 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 keeps you going? Like, how do you show up? Over mm -hmm. and over and over again, mm -hmm. you know, in my research, I saw, you know, when you're talking about speaking to policymakers and it just really kind of hitting a brick wall. Like I saw you try to speak with that Republican senator from Louisiana um, with uh, with the nomination of Gorsuch. Right. Yeah. The, the Supreme yeah. Court judge. And like the level of condescension and disrespect that he showed you and your composure, I was just like. Ugh! Like I was just like ah, um, I just wanted to just like jump the screen and wear him out. So anyway, um, let me calm myself down. But uh, like, what keeps you going? Like, do you have a spiritual practice? Like, what what is that that core essence that continues to fuel Heather McGee through all of it? Well, thank you. First of all. Um, 
you know, I have this feeling like I am really living in a future where we have overcome. And I'm, I'm just here right now to show the way, right? I'm just here right now to say how it ended up happening. I'm not, I'm not bogged down in the here and now. And so when someone like, you know, that was Senator Kennedy was, um, you know, sort of, uh, we were going back and forth at a Supreme Court confirmation hearing, you know, it, I was just like, I know that you're wrong and then you're on the wrong side of history. And, and I, in some ways, pity your, 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 your limitations. I don't, I don't see them as a reflection of me, of my people or where we're going. You can come along, happy to have you, or you can get out of the way. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. like that, that, is, that is like, if I'm really honest with myself, that's like my core gut feeling, you know, is, is, is we are getting there and you can either get on board or you can get out of the way. Um, I also, you know, you got to limit the negativity too, right? I mean, you know, I'm on Twitter, but, you know, I spend 10 minutes on it and I'm, I feel it, right? I feel it in my body. It's like, it is nothing but people, you know, talking about how outrageous everything is. And that is terrible. Um, so, you know, there's a way in which we've got to really kind of practice good, have a good diet of the of what we consume in terms of media. I think we have to um, remember our, the gift of our ancestors, right? I mean, we are descended from people who have moved mountains, you know, with their shoulders, right? And 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 that is something that I can always be in touch with, which is the extraordinary power of what my people have accomplished, and you know, these barriers today or nothing compared to what they faced, right? They did so much more with so much less. So who are we to get down, you know? Who are we to, 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 to feel like what faces us is more than what faced them? Who are we also to not try to keep widening the circle of who's, who's on board? with us, right? To keep trying to bring more people along um, because they had to do that with a very small group of, of allies, right? A very small group of allies um, who were fair weather friends, you know? And we have now 26 million people in this country who took action for Black Lives Matter this summer, right? Let's go, let's go, yeah. you know? Um, and let's all get there together. Amen. So, so, so your book, The Sum of Us, um, please, it's coming out, what, in two days? Wait, no, in two, no. in a week and a half. Yeah, well, it depends on when this airs. But yes, exactly. Sixteenth, February 16th. It's available for pre-order now. Please buy it wherever books are sold. Um, if you want to support independent bookstores, you can go to bookshop.org or obviously your own local bookstore. Um and it's 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 a love letter. It's really something that I hope that um, everybody who's read it so far, which is still like a really small number, right? You know, it's kind of crazy, right? Um, you know, black, white, brown, indigenous has said, you know, there's something that they've learned, something that they've been pushed with, and also something that gave them peace. And that that is really what makes me me very happy. Um, 
And thank you for this conversation. Thank you. And and how can people connect with you? Like, you know, what's yeah. your Instagram, your Twitter? All of it. Okay. You can go to heathermcgee.com. McGee has an H in it. You can go to the sumofusbook.com, S-U-M of usbook.com. And all my um, handles are there. Um, yeah. Heather McGee with an H in the McGee. And um, I'm online. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm mostly on Instagram and Twitter. Okay, amazing. So before I ask the last question, I just want to again like acknowledge you, Heather, for not only this book, which I cannot wait to gift to literally everyone I know. Like my mother's getting a copy, sister, friends, you know, my friends who DM me about crazy stuff, they're getting a copy too. I'm like, just read this, come back to me when you're done, please. Um, so thank you for that. But I also want to acknowledge, you know, just the tireless work that you've continued to do, um, the ways in which you've not only shown up for yourself and your family, um, but for, for us, not and not only specifically black people, but for America, and that you are, again, the sum of all of us, right? Like that is also part of the fuel. You know, it's outside of space and time. It's about allowing, allowing for who you are and what interests you to just flow through. And so thank you for that. Thank you for that sacrifice. Um, and the surrender, because I know that you still do have to live in a body and you still do have to exist in space and time. And so some of those decisions, you know, can be tough, you know, and I know that there were tough nights. I know that there were um, arguments, you know, with your with your significant other. Um, and ultimately, um, it serves all of us. And so I just want to say thank you. Um, I cannot wait to finish reading the book. Um, and it's, I don't even know, I feel like it should be a textbook or something. Like, I don't, like, it just doesn't even seem right that it's like I could get it on Amazon. I was like, no, people need to be reading this at least by 10th grade. So <laughs> thank you again. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for this beautiful, beautiful podcast and for your voice. And so uh, oh. you're creating community in this really beautiful and transcendent way. Thank you so much. Ah, my pleasure, my pleasure. So my last question, what is the world that you imagine for the future? You spoke a bit about it before, but what is that? What is that world you see? Hold on one second. Let me just... The world that I imagine is one in which we all free, right? Amen. Um, you know, free to be as weird as we want to be, right? Um, free to to lust and to love and to dream, um, where all of our basic needs are met, and so we can really just push, right? We don't have to spend our energy and our bodies and our time working for you know, a roof over our heads and, and, and food in our bellies and, and shelter from the cold, right? Where we, where we get the, the education that we not just need to get a good job, but that we want to enrich our minds. Um, and where we really are living in a new world um, where there is no longer, where we can have culture, right? And we can have a people, but that it's not one that is forced upon us by segregation and by hierarchy and by exclusion. Um, and that we can really, as I said, have 
the proximity of so much difference because we really do live with one another and know one another across lines of race and, 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 and gender and all of that. Um, we can have that proximity of so much difference reveal our common humanity. That's, that's the future that I see. Amazing. Thank you so much, Heather. And if you're listening, whenever you hear this, please go pick up The Sum of Us. Do yourself a favor. Do your friends a favor. Do the world a favor and go get the book. It is incredible. Heather, have a beautiful, beautiful afternoon. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I can't wait to meet in person someday. Thank you. I mean, right? (laughs) Where are you based? You're not. You're not. I'm in Harlem. You're in Harlem. You're so far away. You're in Brooklyn. Thank you all so much for tuning into this incredible conversation with the tireless and passionate Heather McGee. This was such a treat. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it with just one friend who you think would really benefit from this conversation. What stood out to you? Let us know over on Instagram at Black Imagination and join us over on Clubhouse as well. Just search for the Institute of Black Imagination. Run, don't walk to grab your copy of Heather's new book, The Sum of Us. It is necessary reading for anyone curious about how we got here as a country. There's nothing you can't achieve without clarity and focus. Let today be the day you choose you for once. Black imagination is liberation. Stay curious and keep dreaming.